dads in the room, happy Father's Day. Great job. You did it. I hope that you get to pay every bill today, because that's how we celebrate Father's Day. I was thinking a lot about messages that we get from our dads this week. And some of the messages are really clear, and some of them are, like, lived out. They might never be said, but they're lived out, right? Like, my dad didn't say much, but I knew exactly what he thought about everything. You know how dads have that ability, right? Like, let me give you an example here. I thought that you mowed the yard to have the yard be shorter. And I thought that mowing the yard was like a form of art. I go some places and it's mowed cool. I go to a baseball game, they mow a logo into the yard. That's cool. So it was my task to mow the yard growing up. And when my dad flew in Saturday night, if he got in early enough, he would look at the yard. If it was late, first thing he did on Sunday was look at the yard to see if I trimmed and if I mowed correctly. But I misunderstood and thought it was art. And to my dad, it was science. And he made it clear. I don't know if he said a sentence, but I quickly learned that it's about precise straight lines and that I was unable could not do straight lines. I could do Mickey Mouse in a yard, but I could not do a straight line. I thought of it this week as I did my little eight square foot yard with my little mower, and I was like, and not one line was straight. And I was like, I still can't do it. I got the weed whacker out. I still can't trim a yard like my dad could trim a yard, but he knew how to trim a yard. And he also taught me to vacuum a car and taught me that you always vacuum the car, and you always do your own repairs, which is why my van currently looks the way that it looks. Because you're supposed to know how to do it. I remember one time I got in this little car accident, slipping in the ice, and the, the front side panel was bent. My dad came home Saturday night. I was like, Dad, I, I, I messed up my car. He's like, that's fine. He goes and gets a chain and a hammer. He's like, let's fix it. I was like, you are Rambo right now, and I don't know what to do. But that's the messaging that my, my dad gave. Didn't say much, but there were like clear messages. Then I was started thinking about me and like, what messages am I? I talk plenty to my kids, but what other subtle messages am I giving them? And I realized one that I unintentionally gave them. I think every one of my children knows that even if I'm in another country, I will know if they sit in my spot. You know what I mean? I don't think I'm the only dad who has a spot, but I know if they're sitting in there. And I come in that room and I know, I can tell if a dirty little foot was up on my couch, the pillow was moved, or so, I just know. And accidentally, I've taught them that like, that's my space, and you don't take my space, you've taken everything else, so you don't take my spot on the couch. You don't take my spot at the dinner table. You just don't mess with that. And then there's messages that we intentionally send. And, and I'm thinking of, like, spiritually, what, what do we send? My dad taught us, you go to the first service because you're out earlier. And so we went at 8, and church was over at 8.45 because we're white. And I was home by 9. And that's what we did. And that's the biggest part of what worship looks like. You go and you, you bring something to, this is what he did, I'm not, telling you, though you could do the same. He brought a gift to his pastor every Christmas, just saying. <laughs> he, brought, 
And he brought the same gift every year. I don't know if the pastor liked the gift. Didn't matter. That's what it meant to be a Christian. That's what I was handed. And then I realized I'm handing a bunch of stuff intentionally to my kids or trying to disciple them, grow them up. But there are, if we don't say it intentionally, we start to accidentally say things, right? And if we don't specifically teach somebody practical theology and practical orthodoxy and how to live into our faith, then our, our, our kids, other people will start to just, well, they'll just start to transfer things we've taught them in other ways. So let me give you an example. I remember I was in high school. I, I got a pretty good job at a warehouse. All of a sudden, I had some money coming in, and my dad decided he was going to teach me about investing. He was like, son, you diversify your money. Make sure you diversify it. And I'm thinking he's talking about stocks, but my dad was old school. He meant like put some in the bank, some under your pillow, some in your closet. You put it in different spots so if somebody comes and steals it from you, they don't get all of it. That's, that's what he was talking about. Like, oh, okay, dad, I got you. And of course, we were robbed and they didn't get all my money because I listened to my dad. So, when it came to faith, my dad was a little bit quiet. He was a great dad, but he was a little bit quiet. And me, like a lot of other people, began to learn to diversify my worship. Just being real honest. Okay, from 8 to 8.45 on Sunday, I worship you, God. And throughout the week, I worship my ability to work. And then I worship where I place my money and worship the relationships that I have to get to where I need to go, and, and the education and these things that I build upon, I'd learn to diversify my worship. But let me tell you something that I've learned that we know from Scripture, we know from experience. Diversifying your worship is foolish and unnecessary. It just is. First couple commandments are about this. If you didn't hear Pastor Jamel last week, he taught us on the, on the first commandment. And, and Let's be honest. There's some of us who are like, why are we teaching the commandments? This isn't fun. We're teaching the commandments because, at least myself, I've been taught the commandments incorrectly. I was taught to look at the commandments as myself, sitting by myself, as a way to evaluate my performance. And they weren't given for that. They were given by a good God who delivered his people to live a life outside of slavery. And here's how to live free as a society, as a culture. That's what it was. As we establish a culture, let me let you know, like we learned last week from Pastor Jamel, you only got to worship me. There's a freedom from these other gods, from these, these relationships that put you in bondage. You do not have to live in that. As you live as a free people, live as free people. And then we get to this second commandment. And in, in Deuteronomy 5, 8, we see, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. This is the commandment about idols. You don't need idols. This Old Testament scholar, James Bruckner, who we had the opportunity of being in his class, said that this is a commandment against bondage to man-made things. That's what this is. He's saying, hey, as you live as free people in a society together, whatever your neighbor makes should not be an authority over you. And whatever you make should not be an authority over you. So the question I have for your heart, for my heart, is have you ever been there? 
where we let a created thing have authority over us, I want to invite you, ask the Holy Spirit, am I bound to something right now? Here's another way of putting it. Do not let something be what it's not. Don't give something authority that it doesn't have. And we're like, well, I never would do that. And then you reach in your pocket and we pull this out, right? I mean, that's, that's low-hanging fruit. I know that. But we are to let things be what they are and not be more. Whatever, if you have a car, then that is supposed to be your car. Not your license on the street that you're the coolest one on the block. Or the other way. Not a way that you look at yourself and say, you know what, I'm worthless. It's the same thing. Either way, it's got control over you. A car is a car, and a phone is a phone. Food is food. We've talked about this before. Food is great at nourishing. It is horrible at comforting. Because like 45 minutes later, we want it again. This is a commandment about things being what they are. And it's a time for us to ask, like, okay, am I in bondage? There's this read through Isaiah 44 this week. It's pretty wild. And I'm only going to read you a couple of verses, but read through it this week. He points out kind of how silly we are. Let me read you a couple of verses. This is <laughs> the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it with a pencil, and he shapes it with the planes, and marks it with a compass. And then he shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest, and he plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. And then it becomes fuel for a man, because that's what a tree is to be, fuel for a man here. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bake spread. And also, this is where it gets weird. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. We're like, no way would I do that with a tree. Right, but I would do it with a thousand other things. And this verse is not so much slapping your hand as saying, daughters, sons, you don't have to. You don't have to do this. You don't have to make idols. Now, as you go through the Old Testament, there's a lot of idols of other gods. But as I looked at some commentaries on this, most of the commentaries I looked at said that this was actually about making an idol, an image of Yahweh. Saying, don't make an image of me. You don't need one. And that's pretty striking to me. Let's look at the, the whole verses here. Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but show me, showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I think 
that we miss what's going on here because all of a sudden we hear jealousy and iniquity and hate and all this kind of stuff. And we're like, no, that's that angry Old Testament God. I want nothing to do with them. I think we do this. So let's just look at these words. Why is he saying that he's jealous? Well, Yahweh here is in a covenant relationship with his people. Your God is in a covenant, an agreement, a contractual relational agreement. Where he says, hey, I, I, just, I just broke you out of Egypt. I just freed you from generations of slavery. I parted the sea for you. I brought water from rocks and bread from the heavens. So you could be my people and I could be your God. And I did all of this to show my work, to show my heart, to show who I am. Now, like, can you trust me as that? That's what this jealousy is. This isn't God looking at something he wants and shouldn't have. This is God saying, hey, I have been faithful. Look at my record. And I am jealous for you to be mine so we can live this out the way that it's designed to be lived. If that's what jealousy is, I'm a, I'm a little bit okay with it. If you're jealous for me to recognize how faithful you've been and to live accordingly, okay, I'm okay with that word. Then I guess I'm okay with the jealous God. But then there's this other part, this visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation. I don't even know what all that means. It sounds like a punishing God. It sounds like this mean God for three or four generations. But I want you to think for a second. If you go through the genealogies in the early Bible, you've got this person begets this person begets this person begets this person begets this person. But you've got generations living together, right? You've got great-grandparents living with grandparents, living with parents, living with children. We know that the imagery of when Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a home for you. We know that like the way that they built homes was extending to their family home, and there was just more and more people living in community together. So if you are the oldest generation and you've spent your life living, worshiping idols, then every generation that follows you, that watches you, is going to see what you did to the third or fourth generation. They're going to see that when it came time to really place your trust, when you were really in need of food and you always turned to that idol, then that little great grandbaby who looks up to you and thinks you're the best is going to learn to turn to that idol that you want to turn to, to the third or fourth generation. I think that just makes some sense. We know this kind of stuff. Let's talk in our language. If, if my kids see that every time stress hits my life, I go reach for alcohol. I've just taught my kids that the only way out of that is not prayer because they see me pray, but it's alcohol. And they either run from that or they run to that, right? And then if my grandchildren, someday I have grandchildren, and they see the same thing, then that's three generations affected by this idol where that bottle can be just fine if it's just hanging out and it's just enjoying a drink. But it's so, totally something different if it is my only way out of stress and fear and anxiety and the only way to sleep 
It's a totally different message, and three, four generations get lost to it because I asked that bottle to be something that it isn't. Does that make some sense? To me, this means that God knows his people. I think that's what he's saying here. Don't bow down to them or serve them, for I am a jealous God. I want to be all that I said that I would be. And, and, and if you bow down to them, then this will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. If you live opposite of me, your grandbabies and your great-grandbabies are going to see that and do the same. Don't do that to your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. That doesn't sound quite so mean when I think about it that way. Does that make some sense? Okay, but it still, I mean, it still sounds a little bit like God is demanding here. First, let's, let's look at this end. So three or four generations if we turn against him. But then look, showing steadfast love. This is this, is this uh, unrelenting love to thousands. Look at God's mercy and love there. We turn away from him, it impacts the people in our house. Absolutely. You turn towards him, then thousands know his unrelenting love. When we look at this, we still think he's a little bit demanding. I don't know. If you were really a good father the way that I would want you to be, if you were really a good God the way that I would want you to be, you'd like soften those corners a little bit. You'd round it a little bit. You would affirm me about 50 times more, even though that's half of what he does in Scripture. Let me point out a couple things about carved images, about idols. First, carved images can't speak. They can't speak. And this is a God who directly comes to his people and speaks. This is a God who you don't have to wonder what God expects or what God desires or what God thinks of you. He has said it. So much so that he sent Emmanuel to live among us, right? And then Jesus was called back to the Father so the Holy Spirit would come and dwell within us. We don't have to wonder. God speaks. So if we want an idol, a carved image that can't speak, then to me, that's maybe this is an oversimplification, but this is one of three things. Either we don't know it. Maybe we don't know that God speaks. So we settle for an image that can't speak. Or maybe we forgot that God speaks, and so we settle for an image that can't. Or maybe we prefer one that can't speak. Maybe we're invested in a carved image that can't speak. And that's something that the Holy Spirit, who does speak and lives within all who believe, that's something that you can work out with God. Is there a part of me that subconsciously is invested in the idea that I don't want to hear what you have to say, and I prefer what I prefer? Or maybe we just don't know, and today's the day. Okay, so it's not just that God, that carved images can't speak, but carved images do nothing. They don't do anything. You carve a little image, bow to it, and put it back on your mantle. Not a big deal. You worship it when you want to worship it, and you set it aside when you want to set it aside. It can't do anything. It's really, really safe. But Yahweh does everything. The God Almighty does everything. He parts seas. He liberates 
people. He heals disease, sends manna, sends quail. It's fire and, and cloud. He's, he does everything. But that's scarier, right? Because if he does everything, then we can't limit our prayer. Then we can't limit our imagination, our, our theological creativity of God. Could you be God even in this situation? Could you be that moving, powerful, active God in my life too? And then all of a sudden, our theology gets disrupted and our life gets disrupted. And sometimes it's a whole lot nicer to just have God like on the mantle doing nothing. And so this same thing, carved images do nothing, but God does everything. So that means if God is a God of agency, of action, then we either got to this place of a, of a carved image doing nothing because we didn't know or because we forgot or because we prefer and are invested in the idea of God doing nothing so that we can just do what we want. And so if you live as if God is unable or God is unwilling or God is not acting, then I want to ask, ask, ask yourself, why is it that I'm living this way? Maybe you don't know that God does everything. Then let's open up the scriptures together. Go to George's Bible study next Sunday. You'll be a 10 when you walk out. I don't even know what that means, but you'll be like that. Even if you've got this like pouty personality like me. Maybe you forgot. There's periods of time where we forget I think that's why God says continually through the scriptures, remember, 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 because we forget. If you're like me, then you beat yourself up forgetting, but maybe give yourself a little grace. God's giving it to you, and just come back. Come back to remembering. Or maybe you're really, really invested in the idea that God will do nothing. And sometimes we get real tangled around that. Sometimes we are miserable in our current situation, yet we know how to do it, so we return. But if God is able, then maybe open up your palms and say, then God, I, I want to serve you, not like a carved image, not like an idol. I want to serve you, the living, acting, speaking God. Why would God be so passionate about not bowing to these carved images? Well, I think it's this third thing. An image crafted with our hands is unnecessary. It's not needed. Because God already, well, let me show you. Genesis 2. The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. See, God already made an image. He doesn't need you to go make one because he made one. So in the very first chapter we have in this entire book, the very first thing that God says is very good is when he says, let us make man in our own image, 
after our likeness. Let us have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock. It goes on and says, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. It is unnecessary for us to craft an image because we are the image. And we are not an image that cannot speak, but we're given the word of God. We're given the Holy Spirit that we can speak. We are not an image that cannot act. We're given the authority of the Almighty God from page one. We're given the authority of God to go be salt and light into this community. So why would we live like a little trinket is what we should worship? This is freedom here, friends. This is a freedom we're invited into. You are the image of the Almighty God. And so you don't need to give power to man-made things, but instead receive power from the Holy Spirit. But this pushes on one other spot that we struggle with. Many of us live like we were created to be faulty creatures. We live really well into our identity as sinful We live as if Genesis 1.27 says God kind of screwed up with you and me and planned to send Jesus. Now, praise God he planned to send Jesus. And praise God he didn't give up on us at sin. But you were born into his likeness. You were born as an image bearer. Your origin is in the image of God with unrelenting love of God poured upon you. And so this is the message we're invited to give to thousand generations behind us. We have a couple generations at this church. And part of what I love about this church, I've had guests come with and they don't know what children belong to what families. Because kids just kind of circulate. And people just carry each other's kids and love on each other's kids. And we just, we're just trying to live into that. But imagine if we lived into the idea of being image bearers. If we lived into the fact that God gave authority to your words and your actions. That God wanted to create his kingdom through you and through me. And so we didn't have to live in bondage to man-made stuff, including like a building and a micro, like any of this. That that wasn't what we bowed to but that we trusted that God within us was enough. Enough not just for us to live in our small little worlds, but for us to be salt and light, for his kingdom to come and his will to be done right here. This last seven weeks before the series, we were in the, the I am's, and, and Jesus said in there that, that I am the life, right? The resurrection and the life said, I have come to bring life and life to the full. And as we read through these Ten Commandments, I'm reminded that Jesus came as a fulfillment of that. And that that invitation to live life to the full is for you and for me today. And there's no reason that we have to settle for anything less. And so... We're going to close out with a song, and then we're going to have some rip your floats. And, Mom, if you're listening, thank you. That was very kind of you.
I love you and I'll call you. But some of us might need to pray. Some of us might have forgot or not known or been very invested in the opposite of what God wants to do. And if that's you, then why don't you pray and let God set you free a little bit and then we can celebrate with ice cream. And so Jamel's going to come forward. Uh, Josh is going to come forward. Stephanie's going to come forward as well. If you need to pray, like t- take this opportunity to pray with somebody. Allow life to come within you. So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to close with the song. But, but take this opportunity. If it's your first time really saying, okay, I want to dive into these waters, or if it's your time of saying, you know what, I, I just forgot, and I've got to come back home. If you need strength for the journey, I want to invite you to pray, okay? Let's all pray together.